If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Twenty twenty two is the History Extra podcast's fifteenth birthday, and to mark fifteen years of fascinating historical conversations. We asked 15 historians to nominate a figure from history who they believe deserves their 15 minutes of fame. Some are inspiring people who deserve more airtime. Others are those whose significance in history has been overlooked. And some simply led fascinating and unexpected lives. To wrap up our 15 minutes of fame series, public historian and broadcaster Helen Carr chaired a discussion with fellow historians Dr Fern Riddell, Professor Caroline Dodds-Pennock and Professor Rana Mitter to explore the context behind some of the nominations and tackle some big questions surrounding who gets remembered by history and how we can illuminate forgotten stories today. Um, Hello everyone, it is wonderful to see you all to celebrate the 15-year anniversary of the podcast which makes me feel uh, either very old or just the fact that 15 years have flown by phenomenally fast, uncomfortably fast. And we're here to talk about uh, a person from history that you have all nominated to have their 15 minutes of deserved fame. Um, So I'd like you to start with, to introduce the person that you have all chosen, why they're particularly interesting to you and importantly, When did you come across them in your research? Because there's always that moment, isn't there, when you're researching something and somebody leaps off uh, out of the archive to you or off off the page and you think, um, this person's fabulous. And there's always some kind of anecdote associated with that. So let's begin with with Rana. Um, Would you like to introduce the person that you have chosen first? Sure. So thanks, Helen. I have chosen a man from 20th century Chinese history who was called Jiang Tingfu. And he was um, a variety of things in his long and quite distinguished life. He was a historian. 
that may be one of the reasons why I first uh, essentially uh, he caught my eye because it struck me that most of us as professional historians, if that's what we can be called, you know, sit in seminar rooms teaching students or libraries researching books, and we tend to to stick to that kind of life. But having been a historian, Jiang Tingfu went on to become an ambassador. He went on to become a major administrator of famine relief in mid-20th century China, a major sort of social role during that time. And he also wrote extensively about what he thought about all of this. He kept a diary, but he also wrote frequently in the press and for other audiences about the trajectory of 20th century China through his own experience. So I found him one of those figures who is an intellectual, but also someone very active in public life. And that, for me, is what made him a really fascinating character to look at, to tell a bigger story about 20th century China. How did you discover him? I think the first time I probably encountered Jiang Tingfu was actually because he was a teacher or a, um, an instructor for someone who became one of the best-known Western historians of China, a man called John King Fairbank, taught at Harvard for many years. But part of his training was to study Chinese historical documents with Jiang Tingfu. And so Jiang Tingfu's name is known to many specialists in my field as someone who was very involved in that intellectual exercise. It wasn't until later that I realised quite how extensive his public role had been. And since I, by then, was looking at questions of how nationalism, identity, uh, revolution played out in the 20th century in China. I kept coming back to Jiang Tingfu as someone who had lived through all of that, participated in it, but also, unlike many people, as a professional historian, had a sort of historian's objectivity at the same time as actually being involved in the events. And that's a pretty unusual combination. So that's one of the reasons he caught my eye. That is unusual and and fascinating. I can see why you were drawn to him. Fern, how about you? So I have chosen Charlie Wilson, who is an amazing life of a trans man at the end of the Victorian century and the start of the 20th century. And I love this because I think especially at the moment, we're so fixated on transgender people and we focus primarily on trans women, unfairly so. So to be able to show a trans man's life, especially in a time over 100 years ago, was really exciting. And I found him simply, as as we all do, you're just sitting in an archive. I was in the newspaper archive, just digitally going through things, looking for things, and found him completely by chance. And it was one of those moments where you suddenly realise something so special and unique is just sitting in front of your eyes. And it was it was a real pleasure to kind of research his life and find out more about him. I love that moment sometimes where you find that little golden nugget and you're like, oh, yes, this is sort of a gateway into so much more. Caroline, could you finish up and and, uh, tell us who you've chosen? Yeah, my choice is rather different because it's someone that you might have heard of or some people might have heard of. Her name is Melintzin and she was the translator for Hernando Cortez during his uh, invasion and conquest of the Aztec Mexica people. And she has been studied by academics and she actually has quite a notorious reputation in some quarters of, of popular history. So one of the reasons I wanted to pick her is that she gets completely lost as a person in her own right. We hear an awful lot about what other people thought about her and the reputation that she's had down the centuries, but very, very little about the woman herself. She was a trans 
translator. She's known as la lengua, the tongue. And yet we have no recorded words by Malintzin, who's also sometimes known as Doña Marina or la Malinche. We've no words by her herself. And so I want to have a chance to highlight the woman and also her family and how that legacy, she has a real human legacy as well as the mythical one which has come into history and into popular culture. The point of this podcast is about who gets remembered and and, uh, historical memory. What do you think it means to historians to remember figures from the past? Fern, what do you think? I don't know if we remember them so much as we find them and then we try to convince everyone else to remember them. That's that seems to be our main goal. I think we we owe a debt to the past. I think all of us as historians, we are very conscious that the things we find should not exist solely for us. They have to be shared. They have to be talked about as widely and with as many people as possible. So when you're talking about a podcast like this, which reaches people's ears, it's so important that we are able to find stories that can really connect when when you can't see them, when you're just telling someone about an object or someone's life. So for me, the reason why we really need to kind of hold on to these unknown lives or these forgotten lives is because they represent the diversity that history has and they help people connect not just to the past but also to heritage in a way that our society or their education has told them doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Caroline? I agree with Fern. I think that it's not so much remembering as revealing and foregrounding, making sure that we bring as many stories and as many different stories into the popular domain as possible. One of the reasons I chose Malintzin is that she has a son with Hernando Cortez, the conquistador. We don't know if that's a um, consensual relationship, but we do know that they have a son. And that son becomes a figure at court. He He goes with his father to Spain in 1529, becomes a courtier, first to Isabella and then to Philip II. And he lives his life as a mestizo, a mixed indigenous and Spanish young man in Spain. And we just don't think about indigenous people coming east in the way that we think about colonisers and conquistadors going west. And so remembering the diversity and complexity of these stories, these lives that are being lived amongst the, the kind of popular narrative, shifting those big pictures to look at them from a different angle. And often these forgotten lives, or or I, I guess I would say often they're more neglected. Historians may have remembered them, but they haven't made an impact on our popular understanding of the past. And shifting the focus to look at these less well-known stories can often transform that bigger picture in people's understanding of those periods of history that they think they know really well. I mean, how many people think they know the Tudors really well, but they don't know there was a Brazilian king at the court of Henry VIII, for example. You know, these little forgotten stories can really shift that picture. Totally. It's about, you know, it's about recovering um, lives that have been marginalised or deemed less important in comparison to these these bigger, bigger figures. Rana, would you agree with Caroline and Fern? I do, but I'd also want to add another aspect of why I think recovering lives is such an exciting prospect for a historian. Because I think, at least in the case of many lives that I've had the privilege to look at, they combine two almost antithetical elements. Uh, one is 
to look at the way in which aspects of the life tells us something about our own present condition and where the links and connections are. Another element, which is harder to do, but actually almost more important, is to remind people that the past is not a sort of slightly dressed up version of the present with funny hats, but actually a very different sort of mental world. And let me give a quick example that comes from not that long ago, because this is not just a phenomenon that happens, you know, in the far off periods that oh, I know that you deal with, for instance, of course, and Helen, I think, you know, all the rest of you also go back Victorians and Aztecs for, for Caroline and so forth. So this is just the 1940s. But I've been reading the diaries of a young revolutionary woman called Liu Yanjin, and she had a interesting and uh, ultimately, I think, quite fulfilling life. But it was quite turmoil written in the 1940s because she was simultaneously a young woman in her early 20s during the period when Mao's revolution, the, the revolution that would lead to the communist uh, victory in, in, in China, was um, uh, going on. And she was um, a performer, actually, in an ent entertainment troupe attached, attached to the Chinese army at that time. And she did historians the great service of keeping a diary, and it's absolutely fascinating. And lots of the things that are in there well, I think sound very familiar to any teenager today. Uh, she worries about um, the fact that she's, you know, she thinks she's overweight. She worries about the fact that she doesn't think her, you know, she's got sort of body shame issues, we would say today. She also doesn't use that phrase, but, you know, all sorts of things. But she's very frank in her diary about she's jealous of certain other people who have nicer, you know, material goods than she does. Um, and um, all sorts of things that, you know, don't, don't sound very much out of place today. But the element that is singly most responsible for reminding any reader now that this is a different time is that she expresses almost all of these sentiments and emotions in language that is shaped almost entirely by Marxism. So when she complains to herself about the fact that she's spending too much thinking about makeup, she says, what I need to do is make sure I develop a more proletarian point of view. Or when she thinks she might be sort of spending too long looking at, you know, magazines with pictures of movie stars, which are a big thing in 1940s China, as they were in 1940s America or, or Britain. She says, I must try and get rid of my petty bourgeois view of, uh, of, of, of life. And some of these things are very homely. And one other example from a different diary, actually from a man, but it's such a great quote that I have to give it to you, is at the end of a long session struggling with himself to see whether he can get that kind of um, proletarian identity through working through the Communist Party and in the Communist Army. He says... The, this is the problem with bourgeois thoughts. It's like the stinky stuff beneath your, between your toes. It's really hard to scrub it away. And the combination of the sort of the homeliness of a metaphor that we, well, those who have cleaner toes than me perhaps wouldn't recognise, but nonetheless you have some recognition of that, combined with a worldview which is shaped by revolutionary Marxism in a way that's actually just very unfamiliar, even today's China, which of course is a communist country, but people don't tend to talk that way in today's China, and they certainly don't tend to in, in most of Britain and, and America. That's the kind of thing that looking at that sort of life source, uh, a diary in this case, can do for a historian to remind you about those, those two conflicting elements, what's very familiar and what's very different. Absolutely. I mean, speaking about China and Caroline, when you were talking about the, what you're working on at the moment, neither of you work on Western history. And it's true that now more global histories are being recovered in, in comparison to before when they were sort of sidelined in favour of, of a more Western perspective, either on, on global histories or predominantly on you know, specifically Western history. Caroline, we mentioned the Tudors earlier on. You know, we, we, we pointed out that there was a Brazilian king at court. That's not something that was really formally given so much attention. Why do you think that this is? And do you think that we are making some, some good headway in changing that as historians today? I think that we should recognise that actually, in a sense, it's that global histories are becoming more well-known in the Anglophone world, where actually this work has been going on 
in other parts of the world and by other people for quite a long time. So Indigenous peoples have been recording, recovering, transmitting their own past for a very long time. So I would just want to be a little bit careful to be clear that it's that it's almost, again, this thing that global histories, histories outside of our Western point of view, are beginning to make more impact in the academy, in the mainstream academy, I think, rather than it being that they didn't exist before. Uh, and I think that's to do with an awful lot of factors. I, 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 but in particular, the shift away from an assumption that the Anglophone world is the peak of all the scholarship that is going on. Now we talk about it in terms of decolonizing, but of course, I mean, I'm sure Rana knows a lot more about the 20th century history of decolonial history than I do, but decolonial history has been around for 50, 60 years people like the subaltern school who began to recover Indian perspectives after independence in India began to transform the way that we were doing histories, looking for unheard voices. And that then had a wider impact on scholarship as a whole. And in my field, we've moved from doing these kind of uh, top-down pictures to in the north, what's called new Indian histories, I'm putting this in heavy inverted commas, and new philology in Latin America, where they recover indigenous uh, languages and work with indigenous communities to translate indigenous texts. So it, it's really a big global transformation that I am failing to encapsulate very effectively, but comes after, I think, actual independence for many colonies, which then starts to shift scholarship and it's it's a kind of big flourishing but some of it also comes very much from below with indigenous communities across the world speaking out for for their own histories and pushing those to the fore so rather than you know what it was originally i suppose you could say sort of subdiscipline it's now becoming a much larger way of understanding the whole context of a period when you're looking at it globally rather than just from one nationality per se. Rana, what's that impact for your research and your work on China and, the, and Asia? Well, China is one of the countries that, I mean, really backing up what Caroline's just said, has had its own tradition of history writing and historiography for a very, very long time. I mean, history is one of the first and actually most well-respected genres to emerge in the Chinese writing tradition, um, you know, more than two and a half thousand years ago, you might say. And in that context, there's always been, I think, a strong sense of uh, China writing its own history. But one of the things that's been most interesting in the most recent era is that China is a country that simultaneously has a great deal of interest in engaging with the Western Academy. Uh, the number of uh, Chinese graduate students who come and study you know, PhDs in the UK or indeed in the United States has been steadily growing over the over the years. And many of the most talented practitioners of the field are uh, Chinese students who have been trained in the West, but essentially, you know, draw on their uh, knowledge uh, and, and deep understanding of Chinese society. Beyond that, though, there is an issue which, um, again, I think, you know, should flag up to us who are operating as historians in the West as to how lucky we are, because, of course, Chinese history is quite heavily controlled in all sorts of ways. And there are certain topics that are very difficult to pursue if you want to do a genuinely multi-sourced, broadly um, interpreted historical interpretation. One example of that would be the history of some of the top leaders of the Chinese Communist Party, because the archives that hold their materials 
um, are really very, very difficult to um, get into unless you're very, very well connected, which even Chinese historians don't necessarily tend to be, and Western ones certainly are. And I know that as a medieval historian, um, Helen, you are very used to taking scraps of information here and there and trying to extrapolate from them a story which can then be, be told to a, to a modern audience. It's called bleeding them dry. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely, squeezing them yeah. like a sort of citrus fruit with all the, the juice. I mean, sometimes find ourselves doing that with, you know, some aspects of modern Chinese history, uh, including, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of tales of, of top leaders, because there are so few sources that are openly available that can give us those sorts of insights. And when we talk to our Chinese colleagues, they say, yep, it's exactly the same for us, because we're not given access to those sorts of things either. They don't want us writing awkward things about some of these almost deified leaders of, of the past or indeed of, of the present. So it's a difficulty of actually being to access some of the material. It's a combination of access and also interpretation. So, you know, the, frank, the, the, the fact is that if you are going to publish um, histories of top communist leaders and the communist revolution inside China itself, while there is perhaps more scope than sometimes one might imagine in terms of putting forward dissenting or differing interpretations, the fact is that nonetheless, the, the space to, to say things that are really going to kind of kick back against the received um, official version is quite limited, particularly at times of political, um, you know, heightened political tension and nationalism. So there's a sort of problem that many of the best sources and much of the best information is in China, but the freest place to actually write about it on some occasions is in the Western world. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's a very problematic point of view, which seeks to sideline and modernise indigenous cultures and turn them into citizens, which they're implicitly not at the moment, while seeing their history as part of the history of the state, if that makes sense. The, the better parts, the architecture and the poetry, but perhaps not the human sacrifice. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply the archive is um is is it really you could have an entire podcast just talking about archive couldn't you and the sort of gaps in the archive the difficulty of accessing archive what we can draw from it and fern you've managed to recover somebody from from an archive as you mentioned at the beginning charlie wilson what can his experiences tell us about trans life in the 19th century when really in comparatively to um you know other examples of people who are living within this period, there is so little that we know about it. 
I think one of the things that we're seeing a huge shift in that I, I think everyone welcomes is recovering LGBTQA stories from the archive. And much like with global histories, with both what Caroline and Rana are talking about, these are things that have been have been ignored or have not been deemed as acceptable to be discussed, to be talked about. And I think one of the things we are we're really kind of discovering is that there are so many of those lives in the archives. They are all sitting there waiting for us. We just haven't had the point where historians in the past were either given the funding, the research, or the acceptability to go and find them and bring them out into the public domain. And we're seeing a shift now in our society where finding those stories and bringing them out is celebrated and supported. It doesn't matter that archivists have been quietly preserving them and making sure they weren't lost. It's that change now into making it publicly accessible and publicly celebrated that I think is is what's really changing things for us when you look at someone like Charlie Wilson who was um, middle class uh, born a woman by 16 realized that this was not who they were and that they lived they needed to live a very very different life was trapped into a marriage with a much older man who's 23 years older and had to escape that run away to London and really travel the world changing their gender, living as a, a young man who then became a painter. And I don't mean a, a kind of an aristocratic elite painter. This is someone who was painting houses, who was doing wallpaper, a member of their union, and spent the rest of their life living and inhabiting the identity of a working class man. So this is a complete shift, not just in gender, but in class, in every aspect of their being, from what history told them they should be living and society told them the life that they should be living into a completely different way of being. What was so surprising to me when I was finding that life and bringing that life out of the archive is that instead of being demonised, which is what today's society would certainly believe that's how they would be treated by the people of their time, they were celebrated. When they were revealed, when the press kind of the, the Daily Express and the Telegraph who kind of break this story, when they go and they publish it, what they aren't expecting is their readership to have a huge kind of feeling of hope and want to help this person and make sure that they can live their life freely and be who they are. And the working class community who Charlie Wilson has been part of, when it's revealed that actually they were born female, a journalist goes and kind of goes to the union and is like, what do you think? Do you think, what are you, are you going to cut him out? Are you going to tell him he's terrible? And they're like, no, we're raising money so that, and we've got him a job. So when he comes back, it's going to be just as he was in the past. There's no change. I think it's so important that we show, I know Rana said earlier how different the past is, but also sometimes how much more human it can be. And how much like today, where people's lives are not seen as, as something that should be taken or, uh, or kind of something that should be seen as grotesque, but something that's celebrated. And there's actually can be far more acceptance in the past for things that we struggle with today. Also definitions that we might place on the past today. For example, the community that Charlie was in that you're talking about wouldn't have necessarily described Charlie as, as queer 
or you know that that, that wouldn't have necessarily been an association. No, there would it would have been a very different. Um, but obviously, so this is twenty years before the first trans surgeries take place that this life is being lived, and so the opportunity there to change his body completely to fit how he felt and who the person he knew he was didn't exist for him. All he could do was change his clothes and change his being and change his agency. He couldn't physically change his body. But, and so with those first trans surgeries also come the definitions that we use today of transgender, trans man, trans women, transvestite, all of that. So the language for identifying that person didn't exist. But of course, that doesn't mean the life didn't exist. We have centuries upon centuries of examples of trans lives in the archive. You just have to look for them. But it's, it's really kind of making sure that we use our modern day definitions, but we allow the past to be fluid. So one of the things I try really hard to make clear to people when we're talking about queer stories or LGBTQA stories, we're not, we're saying, unless we have a, a document from that person that says, I know I was born in the wrong body, as we do with Charlie Wilson, you know, as we do with a number of trans people in our archives, or we have someone who has relationships with men and women, then we don't, we can't define them as bisexual, gay or lesbian unless they say they are. We can only say, well, we could see this life one way or we could see this life another, but it certainly isn't specific. It's certainly not something that we can, we have to categorise. It's showing this kind of, it really is this fluidity in the past and allowing that. Because I do, I don't know how, how you all feel, but I certainly find a huge amount of, of, understanding of fluidity in the past because there weren't specific definitions so it does feel far more accepting in times in the communities where those things were celebrated rather than going well you you're a lesbian so you can't like you can't have a relationship with a man or you're you have to you're transgender because you're living in a male life rather than saying well this is someone who just didn't want to exist as a woman but we're still proud of their femininity with their partners. You know, there, there is, we see all these examples in the past when we look for them. Kit Hayam has a great new book coming out called Before We Were Trans, and they talk about how previously historians have taken essentially a straight lens to the past. So the assumption is that people are straight unless, as Fern was saying, you can definitely prove that they were something else. And why should we assume straightness in the absence of evidence? I think absolutely there needs to be an assumption or a, an unassumption, non, no assumption when we're looking at the past, when we're looking at people's lives. Because I think, you know, we, we've we seen such a shift in the last 20 to 30 years when we're talking about looking at people's sex lives in history where initially it was only heterosexual, then it became very much gay, lesbian or straight. And now it's an understanding of, well, actually, a lot of the people that we labelled as, as lesbian or gay in the past probably were just bisexual, definitely had relationships with both men and women. Oscar Wilde would be one of the main examples of that. And I think, I hope we are moving forward to a point where we are removing the assumption and the bias that we've had as historians and that history has had in the last hundred years and allowing people to just be who they were. And I think, um, Helen, you were asking about why things changed in terms of global histories. 
and there's a similar trajectory, isn't there? An awful lot of this is about communities and peoples wanting to recover their pasts. And so we have a huge flourishing of black histories in the 20th century because people who were enslaved from Africa, taken to the Americas, their descendants want to try and recover their pasts. And the archive has changed so much to enable that. So one thing I just wanted to, to mention was we were talking about discovering people in the archives, but it's also that people who feel a connection to the past are much more able to discover those pasts than they used to be with the digitization of sources and the greater availability of material. So I don't mean that historians no longer have a role in this or that we don't perhaps um, push those shifts or are responsible for them, but I think there is much more of a grassroots movement, isn't there, to demand these kinds of stories and also to look for them yourself if you feel that connection does that make sense yeah absolutely and you know fern was just talking about how there's almost an abundance of of material in the archive but we're just historians are only just starting to be able to actually uh, look at look at this evidence of people being trans but caroline something that i certainly find with my research and i know you do when we're talking about for example for, with Mallinson, even though she's she's transcribing and, and she's translating there's there's no actual evidence of um of her her spoken word what how do you think that we can i'll use the the, the buzzword of the podcast recover lives like Mallinson's when there is um, no direct evidence, as you know, is the case for so many women when we're looking at um, you know early modern into medieval periods. Well, basically, all of my work so far is pretty much about recovering, for want of a better word, or, or trying to illuminate the lives of people who you see almost exclusively through the views of other people, the way pe other people saw them or wrote about them. So for the Aztec Mexica people who my previous work was on, there are no alphabetic written sources from before the invasion. So everything is from this colonial period. And you just have to treat the materials incredibly carefully and be prepared, we call it reading against the grain, be prepared to read them against the grain, to unpick them for things that the author did not intend to try and tease out those little fragments that allow you to see how people might be experiencing things to speculate I think we have to be prepared to speculate I mean as a historian I'm always there's a line for me I think you have to be clear with your audience when you are speculating but there's no harm in informed speculation and you just build be prepared to build up a picture from many many tiny little fragments of different ideas it's painstaking work and it it also often will involve sources that traditionally historians did not see as being scholarly enough to include so in my field in particular the engagement with indigenous communities and their traditional histories has transformed the way that many people's people are doing that work so there have been some amazing books recently informed by indigenous ways of thinking of languages of landscape um, and working closely with in indigenous communities and those traditional histories often can shed a light that perhaps you didn't have originally it's it depends on what you're working on, of course, but so much of this is is just about sensitivity to the person that you're looking at, both as someone who still has meaning today, but also, as Rana said, may come from a very, very different worldview to the one that you're starting with. Scholarly speculation is, I would say, absolutely necessary when we're looking at lives that have been slightly marginalised or even wholly marginalised, because it's, it's far better, in, in my opinion, to have... Um, evidence-based scholarly speculation rather than 
not go there at all because if we don't go there at all, we're just going to be telling the circularity of histories over and over again from the abundance of information that is available to us that has just only really been selected by an elite few to even be there in the first place. Yeah, I I always caveat this slightly though because I was on a panel once with someone who will remain nameless who had speculated in their book. So, you know, it was a rainy day and he said this to his manservant or whatever and they they'd made it up (laughs) that's not really speculating flagged anywhere in the book that it was wow it was on the panel they called it informed speculation but that was not flagged in the and for me that's over the line from history and historical fiction totally well i i have i often have to use chronicle accounts for the middle ages and some of that you know you can't I think it's probably made up basically by these various chroniclers, but it is still a it's still a source that you use and you work with because it's all you really have from this period. So it's kind of I suppose that would be considered uh, informed speculation rather than just making it up. Why do you think it's so important that we push boundaries within historical studies? So we're talking about these, you know, if we're giving these people these fifteen minutes of fame. Why do you think it's important as a historian we're pushing we're pushing these boundaries recover our buzzword again lives of the of particularly the non-elite and the marginalized and how can we work around the inherent issues that entails so you know we're talking about with with fern we were talking about earlier how we can't necessarily apply uh, uh labels like bisexual gay, lesbian, queer, two people within the archive. And then also talking about the gaps in the archive. Who've, who's chosen the archive in the first place? How do we root through years of, of prejudice when we're trying to restore some information about people who lived around these kind of, I'd say, these canonised figures of history? I know that's an enormous question to end this podcast with. So, Fern, because we've started the question with um, with Charlie Wilson, let's let's go to you first. I think, first of all, we're seeing a diversity in historians, which is a massive change, and people who are more able to be their authentic selves openly. So if you are a queer person and you're interested in history, you can now go and be a queer historian, and your way of living and your life will inform your ability to research in the archive. That does doesn't mean I mean obviously that's one of those statements that gets us all into trouble with everyone else because everyone go well why can't I you know if as a straight person why can't I research it of course you can but the celebration and the connection and the ability to find things when you're looking for someone that's like you is really important and we need to celebrate that in in historians and see it as an asset whether that's someone researching from the east from the west I think as more as many historians as we have that do not come solely from white upper class elite backgrounds, the better our history will be. It is something that I think is incredibly, incredibly important. But equally, the reason why our archives, which if we're looking over the centuries, have been the preserve and the conserve of elite white Western people, have protected those stories is because they felt an affinity, they cared, they wanted to, they may also have lived their lives in secret in in a way that matched those stories or had people in their life that, that were part of those stories that they knew they wanted to protect. So it's a very nuanced area 
where a lot of us, I think, when we start, when we're young historians, marching in with our boots on going, oh, it's going to be like this because I say so and I'm changing things. And actually, you have to realise that you will not find the perfect person in the past. You will not find a perfect hero or heroine. You will find nuance. You will find complexity. And those archives will speak to you. And it's our job to go in and find those words and give them to our own world anew in many ways. It's true. You're certainly going with grand ideas as a young historian. Like, I'm going to find this out. And then someone just goes, right, how are you going to do that then? And you're like, um, good question. Um, <laughs> Rana, over, over to you with this, because we were talking earlier about, you know, the, the how it's actually easier to talk about some of the Asian histories in the West, but then actually the information is uh, locked away in, in China. Um, how do you work around that inherent issue when you're trying to to, to recover these these stories? Absolutely. So I wouldn't underestimate the amount of information that is available, and certainly there's been a quantum change in that since, let's say, the 1960s. I mean, just to give you know one quick um, uh, example of that, the digital archive, which is available, including people publishing, you know, diaries, memoirs, and so forth that aren't necessarily an official archive at all. These are, of course, as we've been talking about, lives that often exist below the sort of top elite level, but actually those are often the most revealing of, of, of interesting things. Um, I would say, actually, that, one of the things that I found most rewarding in reconstructing these these lives is the ability as someone who is coming from a lens that, you know, we can, I hope, try and provide as much objectivity as possible, but we're all shaped by our circumstances. And if you're working in a Western university in the early 21st century in a relatively liberal society, that will bring particular sorts of lenses with it. And those are not necessarily bad things. They provide the circumstances in which um, a kind of self-critical type of history can be written more easily than is sometimes the case elsewhere. But I think that the corollary of that, and an important one, certainly when looking at Chinese lives, is to become empathetic to circumstances. Um, and I, I'm going to take up Fern's point, which I think is a really useful one about, you know, sort of going and saying, I'm going to go in and find this, that and the other. And I think it's all, it's, it is a variant on this, which you can sometimes be a bit tempted to go into a historical study and say, I'm going to prove why this person was right and why this person was wrong. And you can certainly find in the case, not least of notorious historical mass murderers, that there are some things which I think we all agree we wouldn't try and want to empathise with or recover as, you know, kind of nuanced. There are, there are, there are some things that you really do want to call out uh, and, you know, there, there's no doubt that Chinese history is full of such stories. But I think the more difficult, but I think very important task is to understand why, for instance, in a century of revolutionary change, when everything is very uncertain, when you don't know what's going to happen next week, let alone next year, when many of the things that sort of almost sound boring and sit sort of underpinning our societies, but, you know, pension schemes or, um, you know, welfare entitlements, all these sorts of uh, sorts of things simply don't exist in a society where people actually live in conditions of great unpredictability. Understanding choices that they make Emotions they express, which can often be very, very um, ugly in the way that they are actually put down on the on the page, particularly if they're reflective of the moment when they're they're written. Um, all of these things actually, I think, are a fascinating task for a historian. Uh, not in the end to sort of approve of in the sense of saying these people were good and these people were bad, but rather to try and explain in the context of their time 
in a way that is explicable and legible to people reading in our own society, which is very, very different from, you know, I assume the world of Aztec Mesoamerica, the world of late Victorian Britain, or the world of 1940s revolutionary China. Caroline, how do you work to overcome some of these challenges when you're recovering some of these Aztec lives? Well, Fern and, and Rana have said an awful lot that I don't want to repeat, so I agree with everything they've been saying. I think one thing we haven't talked very much about is to go in with a recognition that actually the historical profession has often been complicit in telling certain kinds of stories at certain kinds of times. And so we sometimes are approaching these histories with a legacy that we're not always directly aware of. So Miguel Leon Portilla is an incredible figure in my field. He was a great translator of Nahuatl, that's the Aztec language of Nahuatl texts, a great recognizer of the beauty and value of their culture and their intellect and their thought. And it was only in the latter part of my career that I came to realize how deeply implicated he was with a uh, movement called Indigenismo, which sought to recover the what you might call the the beautiful valuable parts of the indigenous past while covering up the parts that maybe aren't so useful in a modern state and it's a very problematic point of view which seeks to sideline and modernize indigenous cultures and turn them into citizens which they're implicitly not at the moment while seeing their history as part of the history of the state if that makes sense the the better parts the architecture and the poetry but perhaps not the human sacrifice for example and for me it's about recognizing that history and acknowledging it and seeking to do history in a slightly different way in a more empathetic way in a way that puts first the perspectives of the people that you're trying to study I'm a cultural historian, so you might expect me to come at it like this, where a political historian, economic historian would do something totally different. For me, it's starting with those people and with their lives and with the attempt to understand them as fully human, rounded, complex individuals. I mean, Fern was talking about complexity in the past. I completely agree. And so an awful lot of my work on the Aztec Mexica people has been about understanding human sacrifice and how you can be a complex, compassionate, very familiar, very family-orientated society while still conducting extreme ritual violence. And so it's that, yeah, starting with the, the understanding that these aren't aliens, they're not evil inherently, they're people like us, but at the same time not like us. It's a difficult thing to do, though, isn't it, as a, as a historian and as a person, to leave your subconscious bias at the door of the archive and walk in without anything, because, you know, you are inherently going to apply it in some way. It's a very, very hard thing to do. Well, thank you to all of you for joining me uh, this morning or this afternoon to talk about um, all of these fantastic figures from history, all, all, all of whom I will now um, remember and look for when I am researching myself. That was Dr Fern Riddell, Professor Caroline Dodds-Pennock and Professor Rana Mitter speaking to Helen Carr. 
If you missed any of the earlier episodes of this series, where historians nominated someone for their 15 minutes of fame, you can find them all at historyextra.com forward slash 15 hyphen minutes. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 